Well, good morning, Will, Marvin, and Mike. It is good to uh, to be able to be with you all again. And it has been a few weeks, but uh, here we are, and it is good to be able to talk some theology this morning. And sadly, we are going to be talking about a subject that probably all of us would say we are more familiar with than we would desire to be, and that is the doctrine of sin. And just thinking about that, uh, I remember that uh, when uh, when I first started looking at this, that um, that yeah, yeah, just thinking about sin and thinking about sin in our own day, that that even though sin is still acknowledged in our culture, and I mean barely so, I think the one thing that is not acknowledged at all is 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 sin and its sort of. Well, as I remember, one one writer put it: sin in, in its religious context and sin in its moral context. It does seem that our culture will still acknowledge sin and the fact uh, of it being like a moral wrong, like you know, like will you do something wrong to me? You know, you you've sinned against me, and and even that's sort of fading, really. But but to view it in in like a religious context, okay, well I've sinned. But this sin is against God too, as well. That that almost seems to to have been taken totally, you know, out of the equation. And, and I'm wondering too, just in thinking about that, how much that has happened even in the church, where when we talk about sin, we talk about sinning against one another and going to one another and, and making it right, asking for forgiveness and, and things like that. Uh, but do we do we realize first and foremost, like David said? You know, sin is 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 primarily uh, uh, against God. It's not you know primarily person to person. It is person to God, and uh, and so I'm wondering if we're just losing that sort of theocentric view uh, of it all, which is why I'm so glad that we're able to look at this because I think as we read these chapters out of Joel Beakey's book on systematic theology, I think it reminds us of that factor, you know, what is sin? And, and we're going to talk about these in a little bit. And he's going to go through the the different sort of definitions and, and, uh, and aspects of sin. And, you know, he's going to talk about many of those from the, uh, the relationship, the standpoint of who we are, but, but he also brings in the aspect of, you know, who God is and our relationship to God in the fact that we're sin when we do sin, that it's against him and, and, like David said, really, in a sense, him and him only that we have sinned. It is so so much of a magnitude of sin against God that the sin that we commit against one another just pales in comparison to that. So, uh, so with that being said, you know, why don't we just jump into this and 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 look at this? And uh, I I forgot, but I'm going to uh, to turn my video off because my uh, my internet could be a little uh, wishy-washy and I don't want to lose our recording here, jeopardize it. And so I'm going to do what I can do to give us uh, the greatest bandwidth, especially since uh, on our recording, it's just a, an audio recording and it's not a video recording. All right. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to hit this and I'm going to fade off on video, but I'll still be on with you guys on audio and, uh, and let's jump into this. So let's talk about sin and, uh, and as we look at this, Mike, let's just start off with you. And brother, you just give us just the general outlook of uh, of, of, of what sin is. When we think about sin, when we think about the concept of sin, when we think about original sin, 
what are we talking about here? Help us to kind of get a, a, a really wide sort of panoramic view of, okay. of what this is. Okay, so I, I'd like to uh, start. I'll start after reading this chapter uh, in this the introduction to the doctrine of sin in, in the chapter uh, 17 of, of volume two. When we we sin, I mean, you kind of let into it in your introduction, Van. But um, we we really need to ask, what have I done? Uh, mm-hmm. This is kind of like my preface before my intro uh, on the discussion. You know, what have we done? We've sinned against, like you mentioned, a holy and just God. So, what is our response? Our response should be to to come to Him with repentant hearts and confess our sin and ask for uh, forgiveness and seek uh, seek mm-hmm. forgiveness. However, uh, before we confess. Uh, we need to understand what constitutes sin against a holy and just God, the creator of all things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I like what he said, you know, it's uh, sin is not a foolish mistake uh, that we've made uh, or the way we brought trouble uh, into others' life. Uh, when we, when we're confessing sin, uh, th- this is kind of like my bottom line up front. We're admitting that we have uh, lifted ourselves up against God. We are acknowledging that we have refused to listen to what he has spoken in his word. We have turned away for the very purpose and meaning of our lives to glorify God and to uh, and have sought our glory. And, and we have sought our glory in mere people and things. So we have rebelled against the king of kings and have attempted to overthrow his reign. We have uh, hard-hearted, stubborn, polluted, defiled, uh, guilty, and worthy of, we're worthy of punishment, all that stuff. In short, we have hated God. And one thing that, that just popped in my mind when, when I was... Uh, on the bottom line up front is when we have rebelled against the king, a king, we, we, we have turned upside down the, his order. You mentioned that, Van, in, in the, your, your series on uh, relationship between husband and wife. And that's kind of what, we, what we've done. We, we've we've uh, discarded the king. We've, we've uh, uh, upended him. So looking at this and what, you know, when we confess our sin, what we're doing, it, I mean, really, it should allow, it should really make us humble and ask the question, man, what have we done? Who am I and what have I done? So uh, uh, he starts in, in his introduction. He, I like the way he does it. He does it in layers. He builds up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and that, that, that to me was a beautiful way to do it. But one thing I'll say up front. Uh, it's like when you try to, to explain the Trinity and he used this comparison. Defining sin is 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 not an easy thing to do. Uh, well, we usually think of categories of sins or or things that are sin, but really, when you think about it, sin is evil against a holy and just God. Hmm. Um, so the first um, the first thing we see is that when when we were when man was originally made, he was made in the image of God, uh, and uh, he uh, he was. Uh, he was uh, pure. He, he was in the state of pure goodness. But God, God tests us. He, he put him in the garden. He gave him a job to do. He gave him responsibilities. But yet he said, you cannot eat of the tree. So he put him, he put his obedience to the test. Man fell. And, and we have the, the, uh, the, the fall of Adam. Uh, and so that, that's, that started, that, that introduced sin. But the first time we see sin introduced in the Bible is when uh, in the Bible, it depicts the wild animal crouching at the door to seize um, a man and destroy him if he doesn't repent. Um, so sin quickly uh, uh, ruined man, Ru- ruined man. And uh, it, it, sin has a ruinous, uh, a destructive power to it. 
So we need to understand, he goes down, we need to understand the nature of sin. We need to understand that uh, it's not just a philosophy. Uh, and I liked what he said. He said, understanding the nature of sin is not a matter of speculative philosophy, but of informed repentance and mm -hmm. vicious, uh, no, excuse me, and victorious spiritual warfare. What really stuck in my mind, informed repentance. And I asked myself question, when we come to God, and I, you know, this is for all believers, when we come and it says informed repentance, what, you know, that, that that's a powerful statement. We're, we're coming and it's an informed, re, informed repentance of, Hey, I've sinned. Uh, what is that? What is that? When I repent, you know, what is, what am I actually doing? So it, it, to me, it has a greater significance and seriousness to it. If we, if we are in four, if we, with an informed repentance, what, what, when we come to God, seeking uh, forgiveness, asking and repentance. You know, we need to understand that's a serious thing that we have committed uh, against God, our, our Lord and Savior, our King. Um, so, but uh, sin is uh, deceitful and it's blinding in its effects. You, ben, you said that we should, uh, we deal with it on a daily basis uh, and we should be experts on it. Uh, well, and so why, why, why is, uh, why do we, a lot of people and believers, you know, we believers still sin. We're not perfect. Uh, why do we, why do we still uh, uh, sin or why sin still around? Uh, well, it's deceitful. It's blinding. He said in his intro and, uh, and it's effects on the human heart. It wraps itself in a cloak. He said, he said, it spreads a dense fog. Uh, it waits for the darkest night and it moves stealthily. So, I mean, uh, sin is an enemy. And uh, one thing that popped out into me and in my military mind is, you know, we, we, we have to know what sin is so that we can fight sin. Uh, know your enemy. So we need to know our enemies. Sin is our enemy. Sin is evil. And we need to know about sin so that we can fight our enemy of sin. And, you know, the, here we're talking spiritual warfare, uh, battling uh, sin, uh, the, the uh, trying to take over our hearts and minds. If I can yeah. just jump in and say something here, Mike, that, that quote you said a while ago was, was, was just great. And it's on the first page of the, the chapter where he says, sin wraps itself in a cloak, spreads a broad, dense fog, waits for the darkest night and moves stealthily. And, and you were saying, you know, we, we have to know about sin. And, and I think in the very next sentence, he tells us where we go to find out about sin. It's not that we need to know about sin because someone may say, okay, Mike, this is great. We need to know about sin. Well, how do I know about sin? I need to go do some sins, right? I need to experience it <laughs> so I can really know. So that, no, that's not the case. He says no. here in the next sentence, he says, therefore we must listen carefully to God's word and God. pray earnestly that God's spirit, the author of that word would illuminate our minds and hearts to see sin for what it is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And then that's, that's great. And then that just segues right into his next, uh, 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 foundation of the, the, the foundational theology truths about sin. And I like what he did. The way they're presented, Van, is kind of like what you do. We're going to talk about this, but not what it is, but what it is not. Mm -hmm. So he goes into, I think it's like, uh, uh, six of them real quick on the foundational functional. He, and here he starts building his case. Sin is not an illusion. It's real evil. Sin is not an eternal reality. It's not an eternal reality. Uh, it, uh, sin came into the world. It, 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 it did not always exist. Uh, 
he says we must reject any essential dualism that that uh, says that there were two uh, e two eternal principles in the world, good and evil. No, that's not true. Sin did not have a place in man at first, but uh, entered the human world by Adam's transgression. Sin is not a substance. Sin is not a thing uh, or a material. And I like what he said here. He said it's a depth deprivation and a deprivation um, of God's good creatures. And if you think about that, it's it, that's a, uh, a, a a moral corruption as well as a loss, uh, mm. a loss of having access to things. Uh, uh, so he he um, mentions the state of being kept from pos possessing or enjoying or using something. So we're deprived of, of we're deprived in, in the, in, of something. And and then our, we are morally corrupt. So the loss is, the, what do we lose? We have lost our original righteousness. Uh, and that loss has an infectious uh, effect on man, is what he was saying. Um, and he equated sin to like a, uh, it's like a bodily sickness that not only takes away the health, but also causes the organs and the systems of the body to malfunction and disorderly and defiling and destructive manner. So I mean, it's like, it, it, the, the sin is a, 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 equates it to a bodily disease and infection that just it not only uh, it, it has its effect on human nature and, and on man at his body. Um, so then he moves in. He said, "Sin is not physical evil. Sin is not merely an external action, meaning it, it, what's in the heart comes out. Sin is not merely hurting other people." And he mentions uh, Burkhauer said sin is always against God. So when we're sinning, Van, you mentioned this in your in your intro to our podcast. Um, sin is is against always against God uh, first and foremost, and then the the individual uh, that you're you're doing because because I mean when you look at the types of categories or types of sin like idolatry and stuff, that's against God. So I mean it's uh, sin is always against God, and I, we see that. In, uh, uh, stated in Psalm 51 uh, as well. Then he goes in and he says there's different terminologies for sin, the various terminologies, and he broke it down. He said there's uh, Old Testament and New Testament. We got the Hebrew and then the Greek. And I like the way he did this. He he said in, in the Old Testament, uh, there are three key words used for it. And in the New Testament, likewise, he said there are three key new words. But these words, he said, they overlap and inter interlace with each other in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then these six words together interlace together to give a, a, a larger picture of sin. And again, you know, he goes through these definitions and uh, lays them out. You know, he'll, he'll lay them out, but then he'll say, but we can't say this because of this. And so you got you to gotta look at this. And then when you look at the other uh, item or issue he brings up it leads into another issue so it's it's it becomes like okay we're laying the groundwork and building up mm. and uh, on what sin is uh, and the words for sin and I, I i really enjoyed that kind of like a building block you could see him building these steps uh, on, on explaining uh, uh, the doctrine of sin so the words in the old testament he highlighted uh, he highlighted uh think about it was it 12 or 15? He highlighted 15 in the Old Testament and he just, he covered the first three, uh, the first three that are, are mostly uh, used. Uh, he had the Hebrew word, uh, the, uh, the noun, the Hebrew word noun, the noun, uh, sin, uh, 
I'm, I, Marvin, I'm going to mispronounce all this, so forgive me and everybody else. Kahata and the verb to sin. It appears, uh, he said, 600 times. And then um, it's, he said it's literal meaning when we sin like that. He says it's literal meaning is to fail or miss the mark. And when I was reading that, what the verse that popped in my mind is, you know, all four fall short and fall, all fall short of the glory. All, 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 for all men, for man, all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Mm-hmm. You know, I've always heard that explained as a target, you know, aiming for a target. But, you know, one thing that's in, in, listed in my experience from listening to sermons in the past with, with other churches, they never mentioned this. We, we, we strive to, to, to be sinless. But when we miss the mark, it's not that we're falling short. We're, we're all falling short, but it's, it's not that we're a good attempt to, to be obedient, but we're willfully missing the mark. And that's what he brought out. And he stressed, I think, a couple of times in, in this target, you know, we're aiming at the target, but we're willfully aiming at the wrong goal. And yeah. that's um, Mike, if I could interrupt, I, yeah. I, I like that a lot. And I think uh, that the New Testament, the uh, carries that analogy over as well. Hamartia, uh, the Greek word for sin actually means the same thing. So, I mean, there's always this idea of, of, uh, of a life having uh, a moral direction uh, and our paths being such that um, without divine grace, then we always, if we, if we compare ourselves as arrows, we always are going to miss, and I'm going to deal with that some in, in my chapter as well. But I think it's interesting, and I, I, I appreciate the point there uh, that that terminology actually is carried over to the New Testament Greek as well. Yeah, uh, and it's just—I mean, I just said it's kind of like one of those—you know—you hear it preached, but again, it's a willful missing of the target. It's not we're striving. It's like, and that. And maybe maybe I'm getting getting old and forgetting things, but I mean that that was I said you know wow it is a willful aiming at the wrong target, and then the the, the next Hebrew word he, he highlighted was the noun uh, for transgression or rebellion, and that was uh, pasha, and the verb to transgress or to rebel, pasha, and um, he um, he said that this these verbs these words are used more than 130 times and. And this, it, 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 it means to pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him. And as we're building this up, we have the uh, uh, willfully missing the target, which disobedience. We have the transgression or the rebellion. Uh, and as we go through these, I would encourage everybody you know, that's listening to this podcast, uh, think of when we talk about the covenants and how you have the federal head and all the, the king, prophet, priest, and uh, prophet, priest, and uh, king. The sin is attacking all three of those offices of the individual. Um, so it's a defiance of authority. That's what uh, the transgression rebellion. The, the third word he mentioned was inequity uh, and the uh, uh, Avon, I guess is how you pronounce it in the Greek. Um, and he said it's associated with guilt that makes a personal liable to punishment. Uh, it's an inequity. So the inequity uh, makes a person liable uh, uh, punishment uh, for the forgiveness. And it allows the, the, for the entry of confession and forgiveness of sins to take place. 
So, but he said these these words, these three, these first three, sin, transgression, or rebellion, and inequity, they overlap in meaning, and they're really comprehensive in scope. They're, they they're not just um, a narrow uh, um, have a specific area. They're they're larger. They're, they overlap. They they function to to each other, and they teach us that when we sin, we willfully fail to to obtain a target. Uh, that was created, that how we were created, we were created for a purpose. So we, we, we intentionally fell to meet that. We're defying or rebelling against the Holy uh, God and his authority. And we're liable. Our, the, the inequity uh, uh, gives the, the Lord the authority to, uh, to, for us to incur guilt and punishment. Hmm. Uh, and then he, he, he lists uh, uh, others, uh, uh, a lack of hearing, or sometimes translated to obey. If you don't, if you if you willfully uh, not, are not listening, you're you're not being obedient. He mentions a um, being uh, having uh, being deaf or blind, meaning uh, we're we're blind or deaf to we don't see and we don't hear uh, the we like the spiritual ears and eyes to be obedient. He mentions the noun evil. And the verb to do evil, he mentions wickedness and the verb to commit wickedness, to rebel. He mentions again infidelity, a trespass, ignorance, uh, and the uh, verb meaning to go astray or sin unintentionally. Uh, he talks about other words in the Old Testament: wickedness, inequity, injustice. Uh, he talks about the verb for pass or pass over. Uh, he. Uh, mentions the verb to wander or to go astray and the concept of uncleanness or defilement. So, I mean, we can see that the, the, and, and those words that we can see that, that sin has a, 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 it's evil and it has a, a it's like a sickening effect on the, on the human, the, the, the human on, on the individual God's creation creation. And then the new Testament kind of parallels that, like you mentioned, uh, we have the noun sin, which again, uh, inequity and transgression, which is failing or failing or missing the mark willfully. Unrighteousness. We have lawlessness. Uh, and those three, again, they interlace with each other. And all these New Testament terms that we see in the Greek, they, 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 they're building upon what we, what we see in the Old Testament. They, they work all, to, I say they work together. They, do, they, they just come together to create a larger picture of the significance of what we're talking about when we we're talking about sin. So uh, I'm going to uh, jump forward a little bit. So we have other words in the Greek, uh, disobedience. We have uh, error, uh, to go astray. We have trespass. Again, similar words impurity, uncleanliness. Uh, then he moves in. He, so he, he defines, he, he highlights these words in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So now he says, okay, let's look at a summary of the biblical terminology for sin. And this is where he goes into kind of like uh, what sin is. It's refusing to hear the divine word. Mm. Um, and then he said, so when you, he, got, he says, here's a, here's a sin. And as a result of that sin, what happens? When you refuse to hear the word of the divine word, sin brings spiritual hardness. So you, you, there's spiritual hardness because you're not hearing the word. You're not being renewed. Um, secondly, he said sin is missing the divine mark. We have talked about that. It, it, uh, so 
when we miss the divine mark, it's a willfully missing the divine mark. And it, that brings more uh, pollution, defilement, and uh, that excludes us from the presence of God. Third sin is rebellion against the divine authority. Yeah. As I was reading this, I said, there's a pattern here. And I guess every, hopefully everybody sees this. Again, uh, rebelling against the divine authority. Sin is treason, a foolish attempt to overthrow the reign of the supreme king and to usurp his place. Mm. Um so what is the result of that? The result is fear. When you when you uh, when you uh, absurd the king, uh, and uh, it's, it's treason. Uh, it's uh, you overthrow him, and as a result of overthrowing a power, I mean, it can, the result can lead to fear. And so then he moves into okay. So we got the, we we kind of highlighted uh, those. Now let's move into the theological definitions of what is the root cause or center of sin. Again, he's building up this, and it's a really, a, a, I think, a, a nice picture when you start looking at, at the, uh, the doctrine of sin and what sin is, and and just uh, the the effect sin can have on on on, on God's creation. Uh, he mentions the Ten Commandments, the uh, the various sins listed in the Bible demonstrate a variety of ways people sins, but. Um, uh, what do sins all have in common? Uh, they have a central fuss uh, that makes it uh, their actions sinful. And there, uh, he says there are various ways or proposals as how we may define sin's taproot and core principle. And then he goes into each with a definition, and he kind of compares it against a, he said uh, Augustine's thought. So the first one he brings up as far as a root, if we think about these, uh, these are common to us. We, we, we've seen these and maybe even talked about in the past. Uh, he mentions one, one uh, taproot or, or uh, core uh, for sin is sensuality versus rationality. Is, uh, we're, we're, it's, we're looking to please self. We're looking to please our, our, uh, 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 our senses. Um, as, as opposed to being rational and, 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 and where a person tends to be more passion versus uh, self-control. So uh, <clears throat> when, when we look at sensuality versus rational, uh, we're looking at um, we need to being rational means self-control, sober-mindedness, uh, and the we look at the first sin, what was the first sin involved in involved uh, grasping for physical gratification and the forbidden fruit. Um, so I could go into greater detail, but I don't want to uh, take up too much time. The second uh, route that he highlighted was pride versus humility. And we know what pride leads to. Pride can lead to destruction, the downfall. Um, but uh, pride, uh, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Uh, the the bait that Adam or that the Satan used uh, to lure Adam and Eve to their deaths, uh, he said, "You will be like God." So he was trying to he was hitting at their pride. You will be like God. He's told them. So um, and we can. So it is the pride. Uh, the pride lifts a person. Lifts a person against God. So uh, the Satan was lifting Adam and Eve uh, against God, and 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 and. Then, also, besides lifting above against the holy God, it brings the individual down low in humiliation and it leads to the destruction of the individual. So um, pride, uh, pride could be a root of, of sin. 
Another root of sin could be uh, self-centeredness or selfishness, uh, um, um, just self-love uh, of self and, and no love of others. And uh, then he brings an idolatry versus the worship of God. Um, so uh, worshiping other uh, objects, worshiping creation versus the creator. Uh, and when we do that, uh, we, we are, we are, setting God aside, making God un-God. Um, and then he said, unbelief is another one, unbelief versus faith in God's word. So uh, unbelief could be the root of sin. And uh, he, he said, unbelief then has been a definite factor in all sin from the fall today. Because you know, if you think about it, one thing that we've been, we've, we've been taught and from reading the Bible, we see one of the key things that Satan does is he he attacks the word of God, the, the belief in the word of God. So, um, again, I, I think that, that that's uh, a key one. All these are key. And you think, well, that's it. That's it. No, it's a, it, these are all interlaced um, and, and, and work uh, work together in, in the doctrine of sin and in an individual's life. If you think about this. Each time you, I was reading one of these, I, I, you could ask yourself, how, how has that been uh, in my life? Have, have I been guilty of, of this? Is this something that's, that's been in my life in the past or currently that I'm praying for or battling uh, now? Uh, rebellion against God's law versus obedience. So this, this is rebellion uh, against a holy God, not being obedient, uh, not following his law, uh, so it's building a bigger picture of, of sin. And, and really, as I was reading this, I said, well, this is really, I mean, sin is not something uh, simple to define or talk about. It, it's, it's a large, it's a large uh, topic that covers uh, um, a lot of thought, uh, a lot of things. Um, and what I really like, and I thought it was really a great uh, tying in of all these different areas he went into, uh, brothers, was on, I'm going to read a good uh, a couple of paragraphs on page 341. He starts a reflection on the complex meaning of sin. So again, I mentioned earlier, sin is not something simple. It's a it's really a complex um, uh, subject, just like when we talk about the Trinity. But I think in the first two paragraphs, uh, under his section of reflection on the complex meaning of sin. He just ties it in all beautifully. And I, mm. uh, again, he's, he, he could say it better than I can say it. So I'm just going to briefly uh, uh, read it. Defining sin is a difficult matter, but we will attempt to draw together various lines of thought this chapter has uncovered. Sin is real, but has no independent existence or substance. Rather, sin arose in history as an ethical and moral distortion of God's personal creatures, a distortion seated in their innermost beings. At the core of sin is hatred against God as our creator and lawgiver. Human hostility to God takes a form that distorts our creation and his image, and thus our relation to him as sons to the Father. Sin rejects this relationship and replaces humble uh, philia love with proud independence so that natural self-love descends into the pit of self Defecation or deification, excuse me. The image of law and the covenant with Adam engaged man as God's covenant servant, according to the thresh, according to the threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. 
sin twists a man into a false prophet who refuses to receive God's word by faith and speaks lies, and an, an unholy priest who pollutes God's worship and seeks after created idols, and a rebellious king who transgresses God's law and incurs the liability to his sovereign retribution. The multidimensional notion of man's identity and calling helps us to understand why it is difficult to reduce sin to a single focal point. Sin corrupts each aspect of the threefold office of God's covenant servant, whether sin is considered as unbelief, prophet, idolatry, priest, or rebellion king. Man's original identity as God's image bearer created sons draws attention to sin's inherent pride and selflessness, selfishness. Just as uh, we could not define the image of God in a single phrase, so we cannot adequately define sin in a single statement. I, I thought that that was a beautiful summary of that, that, that stair-step approach of how he uh, looked at sin, what it is not, what it is, the, the Old Testament, New Testament terminology and defining those and how they interlace with each other, paint a picture of sin. But it's more than that. Then he goes into the, the root uh, or taproot uh, core cause of sin and then he says, but it's not that. And, and then he just ties in beautifully in this section. And then pretty much the, the last, last section on the application, I, I, I kind of covered that in my, uh, my bottom line up front. So that's, sin is not an easy uh, thing to define. Uh, but the, the key thing that really stuck in my mind throughout this chapter was when you look at it from the, the, the covenant and the, and the, uh, the, the headship, the, the prophet, priest, and king, it's absurding all that. It's a sin against a holy God um, uh, and, 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 and making him un-God and making us ourselves the center of attention and making us like a little God. Uh, that we, we're in control and we don't need God. Hmm. Well, thank you so much for that, Mike. And I tell you, it's so informative and it's amazing to see, like you went over so many of those words, not not even all of the the original Hebrew and the original Greek words that are in the Word of God for sin, and it's so multifaceted and yeah. and then not in a good way, you know. I mean, there's just so many aspects to it, and and even going through like you you did, you know, the 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 roots or the causes or what 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 is the deepest level of of what is bringing forth these sins and even there you just can't go to one aspect or one thing there's so many things that are there and so it's so important for us to be able to 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 try to understand that as the word of god reveals it and to wrap our arms around that and to know what what sin is so so brother thank you for helping us do that you you kind of took us to to the the principle sort of the 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 theory the the theoretical the 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 sort of principle of what it is and and now Marvin Dr. Jones if you'll take us from from way up at the heights of the principle and bring us down to the practical bring us down to the narrative bring us yeah. down to scripture in in and not scripture just in defining sin as Mike did but bring us down into scripture to give us the the sort of meta narrative of of sin. How did it actually play out in redemptive history and biblical history? How how did how did it get here, and, and and what happened when it did get here? Yeah, I I think the the title of the chapter, the fall of man into sin and misery, I think is a is a good way to summarize that that the practical effects uh, in light of the um, the uh, word the uh, words the 
biblical uh, framing of them and the theological framing of them. What does that mean in practical terms? And uh, as I read this, I mean, uh, I think that the key theme here, and I, I want to make this as quick as I can, the key theme here uh, here, here is an altered perception. And by that, what we mean is that uh, as an illustration of this, um, uh, I remember, uh, and not a very good illustration, but I remember as a kid going to fish. Uh, and when I did, you know, of course, I would cast a line out and, you know, um, using an old worm and a bobber and, and those kind of things. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, I wasn't actually uh, going for marlin or anything like that, but occasionally I would get, I would get really, really excited whenever I would see a fish like wander up close enough to the shore to where I could see it. Uh, and so at that point then I'm thinking, okay, now this is a sure thing. If, if I, if I can get it, uh, other than just trying to lure it, uh, through the bait that I put out there. Um, so I, I think I, I took a, a pointed stick or a gig or something like that. Uh, and I tried to, uh, do the best I could to the degree that I could sneak up on it, which was not an easy thing, uh, to thrust that down in there, um, in, uh, uh where I saw the fish and to try to, and to try to stab it or gig it. And, and of course, bring it up. Uh, what I discovered was a very fundamental principle of, uh, physics, uh, that I think also has a spiritual application in this chapter. Uh, and that is, um, uh, the light is great, but when it hits, but when it hits the water, it refracts to the place to where the, the, where I see the fish is not really where the fish is. <laughs> and, uh, because, uh, because, it, and it doesn't take much to be off, hmm. uh, in order, in, in order to, in order to miss that. Or as Mike said in the biblical terminology, to miss the mark or to miss the target, um, and I think that this this when he talks about the fall of man into sin and misery, I think really that's that's what it is. Um, I think Calvin says that we see the we rightly see the world through the eyeglass of Scripture, and I think he has in view there basically this matter perception. Uh, the way he introduces this uh, is he talks about it being a subtle shift of perception and of focus. He starts that by talking about, on page uh, 347, uh, the rebellion of the devil and his angels. And, and he, he's careful in this section not to, as uh, as he often does, to say, don't get too wrapped up on the devil here. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, because he's not really the main point of this. Uh, he has a major role going forward, but he is not the, he is not the real point here. He, our point of interest in in the serpent, whether he is a beast of the field that had that is endowed with uh, uh, with logic and with human features and is able to speak at least in a way that they can understand. Uh, and uh, as he says also here, the serpent would have been uh, in the ancient Near Eastern world would have been a symbol that 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 culture those cultures would have associated with evil. So. Um, but he says that the thing we ought to be uh, noticing about the serpent here uh, is is the way he goes about trying to alter the perception or trying to shift the focus. Uh, in other words, to uh, take pure light and to try to bend it and alter it in a way to where uh, it lands our focus in a place to where other than what the light itself, the unadulterated light would do. And he says he does that in several ways. He says, he says, 
uh, first of all, that uh, there's a Satan's deceit regarding God's word on bottom of 347 and going forward. He says, Satan's temptation of Adam and Eve shows us that the core of sin is rebellion against God rooted in unbelief towards his revelation. And, and I think this is a key part of the chapter as well. And, and a practical lesson for us as well as we're trying to make an application of this. Uh, it is uh, ultimately uh, the core of sin, uh, as he says, is rebellion against God. And its root or its foundation is unbelief, unbelief towards his revelation. Um, uh, faith uh, always um, is is rightly founded in true light, in the light that God has given to us um, and the light he specifically has given to us in his scriptures. And Satan actually takes, now of course Satan didn't have a copy of the scriptures, but he does have the word of God, which to Adam and Eve were immediate. Um, and he begins to, uh, and he begins to, uh, he begins to take God's righteous order and, and the, the true and proper understanding and begins to shift it. I think one of the most significant things is on, the, on page 348. Uh, and this kind of lines up, I think, with recent sermons in Ephesians on the roles of men and women. Uh, the, the paragraph there, the first full paragraph, he says, whereas the Lord God always addressed the man first in the garden, and he cites the scriptures there, the tempter addressed the woman and ignored the man. Um, and I think that's key there because, again, doesn't that, uh, 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 that, is, uh, that subverts or that jumps the gate, so to speak, uh, and he knows where to go. Uh, he knows that, uh, that, that Eve, that the woman, uh, that her, um, uh, that, uh, her submission and her authority is to her husband. Uh, and as the head, then Satan would have gone to him if he truly were interested in this. What happens is he anticipates, uh, not fully because he's not omniscient. Uh, but he fully anticipates uh, the effect of sin on the relationship of men and women, and more particularly of husband and wife, because doesn't he, as a result of the curse, which we'll get to briefly in a minute, doesn't he, as a result of the curse, uh, he says, actually, that's the curse upon Eve. It says, your desire shall be for your husband. Mm -hmm. Well, we we see that manifested here. We see that uh, that, that being the case, that what Satan does here in terms of testing, he knows where he knows where to poke, poke and, to, and, and where to prod, and he knows exactly where to go. And I think he also makes a great point in for, uh, as far as, and we often cite this uh, uh, when we talk about the biblical roles of men and women, and particularly in relationship to uh, uh, to spiritual authority in First Timothy two eleven to fourteen. Uh, this exactly, I think, is what Paul is getting at here when he talks about the theological reason uh, why women are not to have authority in the church is for this. I mean, and he goes all the way back and cites this. Uh, and I think I think we often gloss over that in our uh, in our quest in our quest for egalitarianism. Uh, in a true complementarian sense, here we see that um, it's not that Eve's intellect is worthless it it just it like adam's intellect it is always uh it is always lined up with uh with proper authority uh, whether it is to god whether it's to god 
the creator, both of them as God the creator, but also in the relationship that, that the husband and wife have there. Uh, he says also at the bottom of 348, he says, Satan led the woman into a distortion of God's word. Uh, this, again, is the altering of perception, the, the bending or a fraction of the light of God's revelation. Um, when, in response to that, she says, we may eat of the, of the uh, fruit of the uh, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden. God had said, you should not eat of it, neither touch it, lest you die. Uh, and her, her response was largely faithful. But it was what it but but it was suggested that she was beginning to underestimate God's kindness. In other words, there what we again uh, God's kindness in this context is uh, is directly understood by his by his uh, by his provision immediately for them. Um, there's the understanding here that God that God whatever that the world was created by him for man to have dominion over uh and that within that there is there is a there are numerous a avenues of sustenance of pleasure of all these things uh god saw them as good they should see them as good but what satan does here in dealing with a woman and she begins to do this as she considers this uh is she opens up the idea not on what god has given them but what God has taken away from them. Mm -hmm. And I think that very often is a root of our sin, isn't it as well? Uh, it often, it often results in a dissatisfaction or a displeasure with God's, with God's provision, with God's sovereignty on us. Uh, and the devil of course took that and he ran with it. Uh, it's exactly, uh, uh, playing into the trap or playing into the test, um, that God has. It says as, uh, Beaky says it was mostly faithful, but not just. And that's what we find. Uh, and I think uh, C.S. Lewis does a wonderful job in the screw tape letters of uh, in his dialogues, uh, in his dialogues there uh, of of stating that very thing. I mean, uh, particularly church people, we are we're able, even the least educated, we're able to recognize really major things. Um, uh, but. In terms of in terms of the minors, we're uh, we're we're not we're not so able uh, to pick up on those, um, and so it's it's easy then to shift the focus away from what we know and what we should desire and what we have. Uh, he then says on page three forty nine, the devil proceeded to make a bold denial of God's word. He says, "You shall not surely die." Uh, well, I mean, this this is a bold declaration, isn't it? Uh, but again, I, I, I do wonder, uh, and I'm sure I'm positive greater minds than mine have contemplated this, uh, what the concept of death would have been to Adam and Eve. Um, to my mind, as far as the creation goes, there is no death that has entered into the garden, I don't think. I mean, uh, we don't get that. We don't get that idea anyway. So when God says that in the day that you do it, you should surely die. Um, that is, that really is part of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. <laughs> that's exactly, that's exactly what's in eating that fruit that he's trying, because there is on a cosmic level, there is that concept there. 
I mean, the angels have already rebelled against God and their destination is eternal destruction. Death has, death has entered into the cosmos. Death has entered into the created order through spiritual beings. Uh, and Satan knows that very well. Uh, and so having that knowledge then, um, I think that he's able then to go into an area that is that is largely misunderstood, I think, by Adam and Eve, and then to just say, you know, whatever this is, uh, surely God, surely God would not do that, because on the face of it, it's a negative thing. Uh, it's a it's an undesirable thing, and hasn't God given you everything good for your pleasure? Why would God bring this sort of thing into your life? Why would God bring this negative consequence uh, into your life when it is so inconsistent with everything else you see of God? Hmm. So again, I mean, their direct obedience to him is a reflection of the pure righteousness of God as they are able to appreciate it in an immediate way. And as their attention is slowly being shifted, their perception, the refraction, so to speak, of divine light is is being done here it wanders off in a way to where it ultimately is the greatest uh, it ultimately is the greatest uh the greatest shift uh into what i think is the unknown uh and that is that satan at this point then begins begins to define death not in terms that they understand but in terms of what he understands uh but in terms of the goodness of god god would not surely do this to you uh, then on page uh, 350, he says, man's defiance of God's word. Uh, and I, I, I think he does, and I'll leave this for reflection of the readers here. Uh, he has a marvelous development of that in terms of playing out the temptations in the garden. Uh, and he says that they line up very well with, um, uh, with John's, um, uh, with John in first John two uh, sixteen uh, of his reflection of basically, uh, man's, uh, in man's fall into sin, what are the things that are the objects of his testing and his temptation? And in two sixteen, he says the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. We see all, we see all things, all three of those manifested in this story. Uh, for instance, the lust of the flesh is in Genesis three, six, it's good for food. The lust of the eyes is it's pleasant to the eyes. Uh, the, the, the pride of life is to make one wise. In other words, to go above your station uh, and, and not to, again, as a matter of authority, I think authority is also uh, a large part of this as well, is to, again, in the, in the shift there is to, is to go past that. Uh, and any, at the end of the, uh, that, that page, then he says, Unbelief in God's revelation and trust in Satan's lies darken the human mind so that it is no so that no longer perceives matters rightly. And there's this in the illustration of the refraction of light. This is where it is as well. There's a permanent, there's a permanent alteration of Adam's and Eve, uh, both of their their thinking, uh, to where, as Mike said in the last chapter, uh, and uh, and as the um, uh, and as the New Testament says, the very word metanoia or repentance, uh, Mike talked about an informed repentance at the beginning of his section session. And I think that's right. I think repentance understood in its true sense is an informed repentance because the word repentance in the Greek is metanoia, which literally means a change of mind. 
In other words, it is an alteration of our perception, an alteration of our understanding to line up homologeo to confess our sins before God and to line up with the pure light and with his true righteousness. Uh, then at that, uh, then at that point, then it is, uh, uh, it is then that our lives come in, come in contact with that, uh, very quickly. Um, I, I, Van, you quoted this quite often. I, I think, uh, uh R.C. Sproul in talking about this topic, uh, on page 351, he says, man became a covenant breaker. Uh, many minimize Adam's sin as a small transgression, just eating a piece of fruit. But as William Perkins said, this one sin contained many sins, unbelief of the truth of God's word, contempt of God, pride and ambition, ingratitude for God's good gift, craving to be wiser than God. R.C. Sproul referred to this as cosmic treason. Um, and I, I think this is a strong theological term, which, uh, which and I think what Beaky is getting at here. Uh, is that the is that the initial transgression, the one that is described in detail here, is a cosmic treason, and as such, it is an eternal sin, in the sense that that one sin alone, in terms of the righteousness yeah. and the character of God, that one sin alone is enough to eternally separate this couple from God, mm -hmm. uh, and so any satisfaction or any provision then has to be in satisfaction of God's righteous requirements, not only to cover or to atone for that sin, which he has to do, by the way. Uh, I mean, Adam and Eve can make an offering, but ultimately atonement, atonement comes from God to cover it over. Uh, but to, but to also in that, to see, uh, to see there that, that in that, uh, that it is, uh, God, uh, who, uh, who, who takes, who takes away both expiates, and propitiates that sin, expiate in terms of removing it, propitiation in terms of covering it over. Yeah. Um, and uh, finally, let me let me uh, uh, let, let me uh, go very briefly through this. I mean, as Mike said, we could uh, we we could we could uh, put a bib on and and camp out on each one of these chapters by ourselves. <laughs> uh, but I, I do want to mention, he says, he talks about God's silence during the temptation. Hmm. And he says that we ought not to mistake God's silence during the temptation as God's removing himself from this. Basically, he is uh, in the in the testing. He is remaining silent uh, to the point to seeing will unbelief enter in here. In other words, is his word and his and his instruction sufficient here actually to spur and to evoke the obedience of the, of, of, the, of the man and the woman here. Uh, so he says, we ought not to take his silence here as his lack of concern. Yeah. Uh, it is a matter of testing. Uh, and uh, he, uh, and, and, and we, we do that with our children as well. And we were done with that as, as children as well. I mean, our parents, in order to teach us a lesson, uh, you know, they very often would say, you know, Hey, can I play with this loaded revolver? No, son, you should not do that because yeah. it's dangerous. Well, again, uh, in a lesser degree, what would happen there is our parents would very well know. I mean, uh, things that we do that have consequences, uh, if it's not going to kill us or permanently harm us, they would, they would remain silent. It, it's, and it's a case there, not that they did not care, but in the sense there, uh, that we learn best by consequences. And I think that's what we see here with the man and the woman here. Uh, God wants him to learn by the consequences. Um, and so as he does there, 
uh, I think Beaky makes an important point here. He doesn't, he doesn't at this point stop them and pour on more revelation. <laughs> in other words, it, it's not, it's not a, it's not a moment for proclamation. It's a matter for sufficiency and for testing and to stand back and see is what I said is, is that good enough? Is it sufficient mm-hmm. for what you have there? Or do you need something else? Uh, and, and rather than to jump into the fray and say, okay, have you considered this? Have you considered this? Uh, he just rested his case. I mean, uh, uh, Will would, would appreciate that. Uh, God has, God has made his case. He said it before there and he says, what are you going to do about it? Um, and, uh, and I think rightly so. And what we see is they made a mess of it and it, it mm-hmm. came down, um, uh, he talks about God's secret judgment upon sinners. He says, first, they experienced bitter shame, and they did, uh, by seeking covering for their nakedness. Uh, secondly, he says, Adam and Eve experienced guilt and fear in God's presence. Uh, and that's page 353. And, and there he talks about their response before would have been to hear in an anthropomorphic way God uh walking in the garden in the cool of the day, so to speak, their impulse was to run towards him. Now their impulse was having discovered their shame and having discovered them, uh, them objectifying themselves and of God. Now uh, they now, rather than having God's view of them, they rather have opened their eyes to death and to shame and they now run away from him. Um, he then talks about God's patient confrontation of, of sinners um, and, and he notes this here, but God asking questions, uh, like a parent would, I mean, the, the whole, the whole story here, uh, is so reminiscent of parenthood, mm-hmm. uh, both as children we experience and also, uh, as, as, uh, parents as well. <laughs> you always, you always ask that question. Uh, okay. Uh, who tore this doll's head up? I don't know. <laughs> you know, I mean, we ultimately, we, you know, we, we ultimately get, get that kind of answer. Uh, we try to evoke and try to really to get the best result here by, by asking questions. And in this case, then God does that as well. And, and as he does this, he is entering into the situation in his righteous in his righteousness and his holiness. At that point, then they haven't committed cosmic or eternal treason against God. God, God could have very well at that at that uh, uh, at that point did what uh, done what he did with with Noah, and that is just to erase the board and to start all over again. But rather, what he does then is to go, uh, and in that, then he begins to ask questions that evoke the right answer, and ultimately it uh, and and ultimately it ends in the. Uh, uh, it ends in not only the um, uh, the, the penalty uh, for sin against Satan, who again is is cursed to uh, crawl on his belly the rest of the, the rest of the year, who is cursed actually to enter into uh, a cosmic um, combat uh, with God and with His promises, uh, and then ultimately to be to have his his head or his head crushed. Uh, and then the, 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 the man and the woman as well, in terms of the curse, the man, uh, toils, uh, and the concept of death then becomes a practical thing with him, uh, because death begins to, uh, uh, enter into as a distortion, uh, as a distortion of God's good purposes. And now, uh, as Paul says in Romans eight, uh, the creation groans, uh, 
uh, for the liberation or the freedom of the children of God. In other words, uh, it has been subjected to futility. And now in terms of death, that is the, pri- that is the principle that, uh, that in cultivating garden that, that Adam comes up against uh, is that rather than luscious fruit coming forth from our endeavors, uh, weeds are the first thing that come up and we have to, we have to pare those away. Um, and anyway, uh, there's more here and, but I'm going to leave it at that. I'm leaving Will like what? 14 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And then, and then just to tag on to the end of that, I, I love how he ends the, the whole section talking about God's God's seed promise of the victor Exactly. And he says Genesis 3.15 contains the Proto-Evangelium, the exactly. first gospel in which God revealed salvation, both in its accomplishment and application. It is a signal display of God's grace that when he pronounced the curse on the devil, even before he declared the punishment coming on the woman and the man, he made known the grace of Christ. So in the midst of all of this, everything right. you described, Marvin, the blackness, uh, yep. just the heinousness of sin and that that first sin in the garden, that even there, you know, there was grace that was given. And 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 Beaky says that that is God encountering the fallen man and woman in righteousness and holiness, ending his silence. And then as he does that, you're right, then the proto-evangelion, the first the first announcement of the gospel, uh, the crushing of the serpent and the wounding of, of Christ's heel uh, suggests there that mankind will be renewed whenever that, uh, whenever that, uh, whenever that uh, the probation of the first Adam becomes completely fulfilled uh, in the second Adam. And God is able to make of humanity what should have been done through Adam. So I think that's a good point. Excellent. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Mike has given us the, the definition. We've, we've, we've tried to understand it. You brought it down into the, the biblical narrative, you know, how all this happened, how it all started with the garden. And now we'll, what, what we're trying to do is we're just trying to understand uh, all of this. That, that has been the task of, of the church. Uh, it comes down to us, Joel Beakey. This is why he writes this. So he can understand it so we can understand it. So, so Will, how has the historic church understood this going all the way from the first century, you know, the early church and then going into the, the 300s to the 500s of the, the medieval church and going on into the Reformation churches, going on into the post-Reformation churches, going on into the modern day churches. How, how have we understood this doctrine of sin? So really what we're going to, I'm not going to go through all of the each each stage of history and how it's all gone through but i'm gonna mm-hmm. what i'm gonna do is highlight the different um major streams of thought that have been going on through the centuries from the early church to the medieval church uh to the reformation and beyond um so what we're talking about here is a doctrine of original sin mm. and this Concept of original sin can be found on page nine or on chapter 19, the beginning on page 365. It says the term original sin does not refer specifically to the first sin, but to the state of sin that plagues all of Adam's natural descendants and is the origin of all other sins. And so summarize that it's the it's the corrupted state that we are in as a result of what Adam did in the garden 
Adam and Eve, uh, what that uh, Mike just, or Marvin, excuse me, Marvin just uh, covered. Uh, a related doctrine to that that's, um, that is consistent with Reformed theology is the doctrine of total depravity. So we have this corruption, the state of corruption that is what's called original sin. And then total depravity isn't talking about the intensity of that corruption, but the extent of the corruption. Hmm. So total depravity, meaning the corruption that extends to every part of the human person. And so this has kind of been a battle throughout much of church history from the early church all the way to today is to what extent are we corrupted as far as uh, sin goes? So in the early church, you had the mainstream of thought from uh, that is really kind of first fully fleshed out um, by Augustine. And so you have the Augustinian perspective. Um, and sorry. The Augustinian perspective, which talks about that, that that he's the first one to say uh, that an essential part of the Christian faith is a contrast between Adam and Christ, the two men by one of whom were all sold under sin, but the other redeemed from sins. So he really looked at this as a total depravity situation. It's not mm -hmm. partial. It's we because of our first federal head in Adam, we are all under the state of sin that that corrupts every facet of our existence. And then a different uh, theologian named Pelagius it really took on this uh, philosophy of fatalism that was going on at the time. And he exploited the lack of theological integration. And he asserted that human freedom is an imbalanced manner that overthrew the doctrine of man's fall. The Pelagians taught that Adam's sin did not bring condemnation or moral corruption upon the entire race. Rather, sinfulness arises by poor choices that develop into bad habits. So by nature, man always has the ability to sin or not to sin. Hmm. And it is theoretically possible for a person to never sin. And so Augustine really battled with that concept by Pelagian, and it was condemned as heresy later on in the church. But really, you see this as the centuries develop um, and as the church develops throughout the ages, this kind of resurfaces in other forms. Um, and there are even people who try to take a middle of the road way by saying that you can be totally, you can be mostly depraved and or totally depraved, but then God brings you to life on some level. And then it's still up to you on a level to, uh, to get the rest of the way. That's a real, that's a real heavy teaching in the Roman Catholic tradition that you know you have this doctrine of prevenient grace mm -hmm. that god god's merit helps you on one level but it's still up to you to come the rest of the way um yeah and will if i can say this you know my question for uh pelagius has always been out of the billions of people even since pelagius's time and pelagius says you know there is a possibility that that man can you know not sin in other words that man cannot yeah. you know be a sinner I, my question is always well where's that one guy where's that one lady at you know yeah. <laughs> if, if well, there is a possibility there out of all the people that have been here 
you know, not one has reached that. Well, I, I, yeah, I'm with you on that. I mean, I, I wouldn't call John Wesley a Pelagian and maybe semi-Pelagian. Right. But yeah. But yeah, I wonder about that, that doctrine of, of perfection that says, and, and my Rome tells me all the time that that's what his grandfather believed in, uh, that there's a second blessing that will make a person holy and sinless. Right. Which is that I would agree. That's not full Pelagianism. Full Pelagianism is right. Is saying that man is not morally corrupt, but man has the ability from the beginning to right. not sin. A lot of people today wouldn't hold that view. They yeah. more hold this semi-Pelagian view I, of, I, think um, so. I once the spirit makes you alive, you have the ability to, uh, you have the ability to bring your to keep yourself the rest of the rest of the way and to to do good the rest of the way. The, the Catholics do it through works of charity. And through, um, they recognize it through, you know, the sacraments and, and continuing to yeah, come to church exactly. and, and through baptism and yep. confession and, and uh, marks of penance that they have to do. Yep. The word of faith movement's another one where oh, they, yeah. they, if you just, if you just have enough faith, you can yep. make it the rest of the way. If you have enough faith, you can, you can defeat sin fully and completely. Um, which I wanted to kind of get to back what Mike was talking about into the in the introduction to the doctrine of sin. You first have to understand when we talk about sin, there's two aspects of it um, that trying to find the person who attributed this. It was Murray, but I can't remember his first name. On John page, Murray. Is it John Murray? Three forty. Three thirty four. The top of the page it says. Murray explained that sin involves both pollution and guilt. The former yeah. consists in the unholiness and depravity of man's character and actions so that a man stands in contradiction to the holiness of God. So that's the pollution aspect. The guilt consists of demerit and liability to punishment because of man's lawless rebellion against God's justice. And then here's the, here's the answer that we have in the Bible and what Christ did on the cross. You have justification. Justification removes the guilt of sin, so it takes away that aspect of sin and grants us a righteous status before God. And then sanctification removes sin's pollution over time. It's a process of, of depolluting yourself, yeah. purifying yourself. Yeah, and that's, and that's, that's something. Where it is. Right. And I think that's where really, yeah. when, when somebody doesn't understand this concept of what the full totality of what sin is, it's easy to fall into a trap of like, of, this justification versus sanctification exactly. aspect. And so people fall into Pelagianism by thinking, Oh, I can, I can work my way through this. The Bible tells me to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. The Bible tells mm -hmm. me to do good works, but they don't understand that that's a process of sanctification and not mm -hmm. a process of justification. Right. Um, very, very good. And so moving on from, so this, so this idea of penance of, of a semi-Pelagian view that kind of permeated the Roman Catholic Church um, through uh, talking about earning divine merit, this concept of provenient grace, this concept of um, this treasury of Mary that you could uh, store up ex excess merit with God and and get yourself out of um, purgatory, which is yeah. an unbiblical view. Um this has become really prevalent until Martin Luther in the Reformation, where he understood that salvation came by faith and through faith alone. 
And when it comes to this concept of original sin, Martin Luther said that the corruption of all mankind, it, it was the corruption of all mankind into bad trees that can bear only bad fruit. Mm-hmm. Free choice and fallen man can do nothing but commit mortal sin. So that you have free choice, but your free choice is limited to sin. Yeah. And then and, and, and that, that that's an important reformation principle, yeah. I think, to highlight because many times uh reform people will be sort of character uh caricatured <laughs> to, right. to say, Hey, we, we don't believe in a will. We don't believe in any will. Well what right. we do, it's just, you know, your your will is confined to whatever arena you are in morally. Right. So if you're unsaved, you can only choose, you know, sinful things. You, you you can't choose outside of that arena. Right. And then you have this debate between Martin Luther. So it's kind of a, a so you first in the earlier church movement, you had this this uh, Augustinian view versus a Pelagian view. And then you had now you have in the in the in the time of Martin Luther, you had another debate going on under the concept of free will and that was between erasmus and martin luther and that's what led to martin luther's book the bondage of the will erasmus argued that the holy scriptures often confirm the power of the human will whereby man can apply to or turn away from that which leads into eternal salvation and so he was holding a semi-pelagian view of sin and how because the bible says do this and do that and you you know there's these command these commands to not sin that erasmus took the view that that meant you had the ability to do that and so martin luther challenged that viewpoint and really uh came across with that and said listen it's it's not about ability it's about duty and and he he pointed out that erasmus was conflating duty with ability and Erasmus was ignoring the parts of scripture that talked about how we were dead in our sins and our trespasses and that our, our most righteous deeds apart from Christ were just filthy rags. And so he was talking about how, and I, I love this, I actually finished reading that book last year. He talked about how you wouldn't understand if you were, that you were uh, crippled unless you were trying to get up and walk. Hmm. Right. And if you you wouldn't know about your inability unless you were given something to a goal and once you keep trying to hit that goal and you can't that's when you realize that you're unable to do the thing and so that's how he was pointing out that really what these commands were doing was was trying to show the people of Israel and and really the world that you are not able to keep God's law on your own and that's why in Jeremiah God prophesy that he would give us a new heart jesus said in john chapter 3 that you have to be born again before you can see the kingdom of heaven and it's talking about this holy spirit making you alive to the things of god holy spirit opening your heart and giving you the ability to choose god yeah and 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 and, and luther also introduces um the um oh i forget what i was going to say but the um uh, oh, the the, the uh, distinction of law, law and gospel, of law and grace. I think that very much magnifies what you're talking about, Will, in terms of, uh, in terms of making the sharp distinction. Law brings us up to the point, as you say, of where I I realize I can't walk. 
gospel is that it, gospel is that which enables us to walk, or which which gives us. Yeah. So then Luther kind of Luther and and later in the Augsburg Confession and the Formula of Concord, they talk about how when the Holy Spirit has begun this work and offered grace through the Word, the will of man is able to help and cooperate. In this early stage of grace, man must not resist God's grace. For those who persist, who persistently resist the Holy Spirit and stubbornly struggle against what is recognized truth, will not be converted. If such non-resistance itself is possible only by the grace of Spirit, for conversion is entirely His gift. That's on towards the end of of page three seventy two, before the the new section on the early Reformed churches on original sin. But John Calvin gave this definition of original sin: a heredity excuse me, hereditary depravity and corruption of our nature diffuse into all parts of the soul, which first makes us liable to God's wrath, then also brings forth in those works which scripture calls works of the flesh. And so you see here this, this calling back to this, it's a total utter, it's a total depravity situation where you have it's it's not just in certain parts. It's not like you're morally neutral. It's it's all it extends to every part of who you are. Yeah. Then there was another attack on that, and then Calvin talked about the in his his treatise, the defense of the sound and orthodox doctrine of the bondage and liberation of human choice. When discussing the freedom of the will, Calvin distinguished between freedom from coercion and freedom from necessity. The former he allowed, for he believed that man's will, even in his fallen condition, acts without being forcibly moved by an external impulse. So we're not coerced into sinning. That's just our nature, is what he's saying. Because of original sin, our nature is is sinful. Every desire of our heart, we are free to choose between multiple different desires, but that all of them are sinful. And then he distinguished that from freedom of necessity, which is uh, man's will. It's the concept that man's will is of necessity driven to what is evil and cannot seek anything but evil. He rejected that um, because he said it's not by any external compulsion, but because of its corruptness. For this reason, Calvin did not favor the term freedom of the will, for it suggests that people can choose God apart from grace. Um, so you see that idea being fleshed out more in the Belgic Confession. Um, and in the Heidelberg Catechism. And so then you you really keep going on through throughout time, uh, this concept of original sin. And then you have another, like a third phase of debate between Arminians and, and uh, the Reformed tradition. And really, Arminianism is kind of Pelagianism in a, in another sense, because it talks about moral neutrality mm -hmm. and uh, it talks about Jacob Arminianus taught that Adam sin brought upon his natural descendants, both a liability to death under God's wrath and the loss of original righteousness. It says here, it is notable that Arminian, Arminius, excuse me, considered original sin to consist only of the absence of original righteousness not privation of righteousness plus the presence of corruption. So he denied this concept of corruption. He just said it's an absence of righteousness. It's not corruption. So you have this man in morally neutral state who can either choose 
good or choose evil as if he wasn't corrupted in and of himself. But that's contrary to what we see in scripture. And so then you had the uh, canons of Dort that came out uh, at the Sinai of Dort and the Westminster Confession of Faith that all went back and challenged that view with scripture and said, hey, listen, this is this is what we're talking about here is is that we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. What Ephesians tells us that we are there's nothing good you can do apart from grace, apart from God. And so you see this kind of keep fleshing out over and over and over again from Augustine to Pelagianism to uh, Luther and Erasmus to now Calvin and, and those who are in the more reformed tradition to Arminianism. And, but really what we're talking about here is throughout the ages, many theologians have attempted to craft a middle road between Augustinianism and Pelagianism. It proposes that God's grace partially heals man from original sin so that people have the ability to embrace further grace. Though the solution seeks to ascribe the glory of salvation entirely to God, at a practical level, it gives man ultimate veto power over his salvation, logically requiring that man must credit himself along with God for his redemption. Whereas the Reformed view is, it's all God. God, we are, our natural state, our natural inclination is against the things of God it's set as enemies of God and but the only way we can attain salvation at all is through the utter work of the Holy Spirit making us alive and choosing us so that is the concept of original sin and how it's been flushed out throughout the ages Hmm. amen well brother thank you for that and uh and and that's only the the first part uh, of that section so now uh, having kind of given the survey and the landscape of church history in the second part, and, and that'll be where we start off next next time, Lord willing, uh, we'll settle in to, uh, to the reform view of that. And then we'll look at some aspects of, of that as well as we, uh, as we keep on tracking with this and as we keep on talking about uh, the doctrine of sin. Well, guys, thank y'all so much for your time. Uh, it has certainly been helpful for us to to look at this and to get our arms around this. And uh, and Mike, I want to ask you if you brother, if you'll just close us with pray in prayer. And I think the proper thing to do would be to ask the Lord for His help and His grace as we battle against this thing that we've been talking about for for about an hour and a half. Is this this thing called sin? It's so deceptive, so destructive. Something that that wants to have us every moment of every day, how we need the Lord's help in this. So, so brother, could you close out our time together today? Sure. Okay. <clears throat> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for um, just this, this morning session, this, uh, this opportunity we've had to uh, discuss the concept of um, the, uh, of sin, Lord. And just the Lord, the, just the the extent and the breadth of of just what we really just scratched the surface on, and Lord, it is not a uh, a simple um, uh, a simple thing, but a, a complex, a wide-reaching uh, uh, subject to talk about, Lord, Father, and we we do need your help, Lord. We we need your grace, your mercy. Your, we need we need you to give us wisdom as we as we uh, battle. Uh, uh, sin, uh, Lord, even even as your children, we, we we battle sin as we have talked about, Lord. 
Lord, we we need uh, your your help. We need your 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 wisdom from you. We need uh, your guidance. We need the leading of, of the Holy Spirit, Lord. We 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 just need to be disciplined in our study of your word, Lord. We need to come to you in prayer. We need to stay in your word for the renewing of our minds and hearts, Lord, so that we can see uh, the truth through the, through your word, Lord, because your, your, your word is truth and it never changes, Lord. It, we, we, it is trustworthy as you are is, and you are faithful, Lord. And, and Lord, you love us. We love you, Lord. And Lord, may we always remember to be dependent upon you and not to seek uh, an explanation or to seek uh, uh, rewards or, uh, or gratitude from man. But we need to come to you, Lord, and we need to serve you for that is our chief uh, purpose is to, to, to honor and glorify you, Father. May we never uh, forget that and may we never uh, fall into the, the, the trap of, of Satan uh, of upending and just turning upside down the 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 offices uh of uh, king prophet and priest father may we always remember that you are the king you are the god of gods lord of lords and may we uh, may we 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 uh, share that with those that we come into contact with may we may we uh, uh edify those may we we encourage those and may we we encourage other individuals to study sin because it is important lord and just we this the uh, the uh, when we come to you in repentance, Lord, we we need to understand what 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 we are doing when we do that. It is a very serious uh, thing that should bring us uh, to a moment where we just uh, say uh, we are very humbled and we say, "Wow, what have I done against my God?" Father, again, as we leave this. Uh, as we leave this uh, podcast discussion, Lord, I just pray that you'd be with us throughout the day. Uh, watch over us, protect us, uh, guide our steps. Lord, you name I pray now.